morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the What's Important Now podcast. Chief Patrol Agent Ryan Landrum coming to you from the U.S. Border Patrol Academy in Artesia, New Mexico. Um, today, I have a very special guest, but before I, I get into to introducing him, I'd like to give you just a little bit of a history lesson uh, as it relates both to how we train Border Patrol agents today and the creation of the organizational structure within the Customs and Border Protection enterprise as it is today as well. So in 2012, the Commissioner of Customs and Border Protection, or CBP at the time, commissioned the Police Executive Research Forum, or PERF, to basically review all use of force incidents by Customs and Border Protection officers and agents. That's both uh, Office of Field Operations, Air and Marine, Border Patrol, all three of the uh, enforcement branches within CBP. Uh, there was a, a bit of a spike in the use of deadly force. Um, this review included the the blanket use of deadly force by all those components within the years of 2010 to 2012. The interesting part about the results of that particular re report were that uh, it largely serves as some of the tenets within it, some of the recommendations within this report serve as the backbone for how we train Border Patrol agents in the 21st century today. Um, additionally, though, it also created um, a brand new organizational structure for CBP. So we went from basically a flat organization with, you know, 20 plus direct reports to the deputy commissioner and the commissioner to an organization that looks a little more traditional with some verticals and some layers of uh, leadership in between the commissioner, the deputy and the operational components or the components of CBP. Um, within that particular org change, uh, the Office of Professional Responsibility was also created. The Office of Professional Responsibility can be generally characterized, formerly known as the uh, IA, if you will, traditionally in a, in a police department, an IA department. That's kind of what uh, the role of the Office of Professional Responsibility is today, or OPR as we refer to it. Um, the the PERF identified that there were some gaps in the ways in which criminal investigations were being conducted uh, within, the, within the, uh, the component of Customs and Border Protection, both in terms of the consistency of those investigations and the timeliness of the results of those investigations. From that, they, they kind of streamlined how we do that. They kind of uh, corrected the, the problem within, within CBP and henceforth was born the Office of Professional Responsibility. Today, I have the opportunity to uh, introduce you to the Executive Director of Investigative Operations Directorate within the Office of Professional Responsibility, Dan Altman. Dan, welcome. Chief, thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. Excellent. So I want, I want to talk about what OPR is. What is the Office of Professional Responsibility? What do they do? What do they investigate? Um, are there some misnomers out there? What, what, what can we help clarify? But first, I kind of want to go back to 1995. I learned here that uh, you were once a Border Patrol agent. I was. Yeah. So you said you entered on duty in, in 1995 with class 294 and you went to the Chula Vista station in San Diego, California. Chula Vista is uh, a neighboring station to the Imperial Beach station that we've talked about before. Uh, it's you know, the Imperial Beach Station sits on the, on the water of the Pacific Ocean, and just one station in is the Chula Vista Station. So put yourself uh, in middle of uh, San Diego sector in 1995. 
Uh, but the first thing I have to ask you is, do you remember your class chant all these years later? Yeah, without a doubt, Chief. It's uh, 294, law and order, first with 40s to the border. Wow. And, that's uh, a... You were the first class that actually left the academy with semi-automatic guns, which was which was a pretty cool... Uh, so you transitioned from the revolver at the time. So we used to shoot uh, Smith & Wesson, I believe, uh, 357 revolvers. And then we, we transitioned into the 96D Brigadier from Beretta. So we were, we were in my station, we had probably 450 agents. And yeah. when the five or six of us showed up that were trainees, we were the first ones to have the new guns there. Wow. Uh, did you get any uh, flack for that? No, actually, everybody, it was actually a little scary. Everybody wanted to see it. Uh, and so uh, we, uh, of course, handled it carefully. But no, it right. was, people were excited to, I think there was a little bit of tradition lost, but people were excited to get the new guns as well. Awesome. Yeah, this is, you know, we, we kind of uh, date each other uh, in the patrol, not only by potentially, you know, were you in Legacy INS or Legacy Customs, but also, uh, you know, which gun did you carry or how many guns, different guns did you carry? And it's just a kind of a rite of passage because we've, over time, we transition between weapons based on contracts and the advent of new technology and stuff like that. So uh, today, obviously, we've uh, recently transitioned to the Glock. Um, so kind of a departure from that Smith & Wesson wheel gun 357. But there's been a couple guns in between there. But uh, we, we often talk about, oh, well, you just came in with a 357. It's kind of like, wow, that's an old patrol guy right there. Yep. Uh, right. So you, you do that for about three years. You, you haven't even met fond memories of your time in Chula Vista. Yeah, you know, first of all, you know, I joined the Border Patrol when I was 21. So I think being at the Border Patrol Academy was probably one of the most formative experiences <laughs> in my adult life. I'm not just saying that because I'm sitting here. Yeah. No, but without a doubt, I in the three years I was uh, in the patrol, I was um, involved. We started an explorer post at, uh, at Chula Vista Station. Um, I was a union rep. I got a chance to do um, detail management. I was a scope operator. I got to fly in the helicopter. Um, I, I don't think there's anything a 21-year-old who wanted to get into <laughs> law enforcement could ask for would have been better yeah. in those three years. And it was a busy station at the time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So you mentioned 450 agents. That is a huge station in 1995. That's arguably one of the biggest ones. The volume of, of migration traffic through the San Diego sector specifically at the time was very high. We were we were sending a lot of brand new agents into San Diego. Um, you mentioned Explorer Post. This is an interesting piece as well. Uh, explorers are an opportunity for us to engage the community, even at the at the youth level. Mm-hmm. So folks that are very, very young, who have an, maybe an interest in law enforcement, maybe want to learn more about the Border Patrol specifically, maybe even as a recruitment pipeline. But at the same time, we are uh, basically uh, humanizing the way in which the Border Patrol interacts with the community. So you, you can form an opinion about the operations that were going on in San Diego at the time, but at the same time, we were uh, aggressively trying to put forth uh, the best image possible. And it started all the way back with, uh, you know, kind of a dare type program, but this is the explorers for for the U.S. Border Patrol. So that's really, really cool. Yeah, super, super interesting point on that. Um, the first explorer post in the Border Patrol was started by now Chief Gloria Chavez, ah. who is in El Paso sector, who at the time was at Imperial Beach Station right next door. And so not that we were competing with them, but we yeah. did set up our own chapter right next door. I can tell you now, because I'm still in touch with all those explorers, you know, 26 years later, yeah. a number of them become Border Patrol agents. There are people that join the military. There are yeah. folks that are in medical careers. Uh, and it was a great experience uh, for them to have the opportunity to be exposed to the patrol and all the resources we had to offer them as high school students at the time. That is that is a, a tremendous story. And, th- and that, that story plays out in so many ways that, you know, if you're an agent listening, don't underestimate the impact you potentially have on somebody that's not wearing the green uniform or uh, somebody that we might encounter in the field. So how you interact with those people positively or negatively could shape the rest of their yeah. lives and how they view us as an organization, how they view us as people, but also maybe even uh, entice them to, based on their interaction with you, join the ranks. Yeah. 
So you do that for three years, like I said, and in, the, in 1998, you leave the Border Patrol. What, what drove you to do that? Why did you do that? Where'd you go? Yeah, so um, I think in the time I was in the Border Patrol, I really had a very strong interest in getting into criminal investigations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an opportunity arose in 98, about the three-year mark, um, I was able to um, get a position with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations um, as a criminal investigator. And so um, took advantage of that opportunity, um, brought a lot of my Border Patrol experience with me. Um, it's a primarily military organization yeah. with a small number of civilian special agents. And so having that you know, three years of pretty intense law enforcement experience with, uh, with BP, I was able to, to bring that into my new position. I did that job for about 11 years. Um, I did everything ranging from crimes against persons to procurement fraud uh, to counter espionage operations. I got to deploy to Afghanistan um, and... Um, Spent some time there doing um, counterterrorism operations. Um, and then um, around uh, 2009, um, I was given the opportunity to um, go to the, the Office of Inspector General of the U.S. Agency for International Development. And the connection there was really my time in Afghanistan because USAID was funding a lot of programs in Afghanistan, Pakistan, some of those very dynamic um, combat-type environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that experience I had doing investigations in that area uh, was sort of the parlay into that position. And so I spent about five or six years as a special agent in charge in the Middle East and Asia. And then I got promoted to the um, SES position of the Assistant Inspector General for Investigations um, at USAID. Um, and interesting story, um, USAID headquarters and the OIG headquarters just happens to be conveniently located in the, in the Ronald, Ronald Reagan, Reagan building. building. That's on the right. exact opposite side of the atrium <laughs> as Border Patrol headquarters. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and maybe we'll talk about it, but I always felt a little force pulling me back. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Never did you know to, when you left in 1998 that you'd circle right. full back to, exactly. to Border Patrol. But I started to bump into a lot of old colleagues, and I was able to, th- my friends that had stayed in the patrol right. were extremely successful, and a lot of them were coming up to headquarters and leadership positions. And so I sort of started the process of getting to learn more about what's happening in CBP, and I think maybe in some way that contributed to me eventually coming back to where I am now. Excellent. A couple, a couple of things on that. So <clears throat> as it relates to uh, the job that we do, this, this story again plays out all over the place. It was, it was, uh, it was my vision as well for myself. Um, I, I intended to come into the U.S. Border Patrol, earn a degree, and move on to a three-letter agency. That was, that was what I was going to do. I fell in love with the, with the position, with the people, the mission, um, but sometimes, <laughs> even though you fall in love with all those things and you got to do things at 21 years old that, that frankly, you were probably surprised they let you do, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's still opportunities outside the Border Patrol for other people. We would love to retain everybody that walks through the doors of the U.S. Border Patrol Academy and ha- let them have a long, fruitful f- career. Mm-hmm. But we also know that uh, we really train them at a very high level the experiences they gain from day one, quite literally in the, in the border environment as a law enforcement officer, as a police officer, um, really is an attractive characteristic and, and, and something that other agencies, whatever, whatever it is, three letter agency, uh, military like agencies, um, they are really attracted to what we bring to the table. Um, and that's, and that's perfectly fine too. It's, 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 it's a testament to the people that we actually get through here and the training that we put them through and then how they handle themselves in the field that allow them to go be successful people in other ways, uh, still contributing to the larger mission of national security, 
You're not, you haven't left that, that field, but you're just not doing it from the green suit, mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a super important uh, thing to acknowledge that we would love to keep people, but at the same time, we know our people are top notch and they sometimes go do other things. And that's and I, okay. And I think about, think back about, um, sort of, a, as I mentioned, I think as a sort of a foundational part of my career of being in the Border Patrol, and I think about the attributes that um, I gained or the, the experience I gained in the Border Patrol. I think um, people generally recognize Border Patrol agents as being great problem solvers, yeah. people that are able to work in you know, very austere environments without being given really complicated problems and consistently coming up with good solutions, yeah. not complaining much about it, but that's sort of the nature of the job. And so I think as I moved throughout my career, uh, those were some of the things that I, you know, I took with me. And I always felt, um, I almost felt a little self-conscious about it because I, I stayed in touch with my friends in the Border Patrol. I went back and visited my station. Okay. And I always felt like, you know, maybe there was something else that I was supposed to do. And so um, when this position that I'm in now came open, and I was already working in the same building. It wasn't about the commute at all. But when I learned about the position, I said to myself, you know what? I have no idea if these guys are going to hire me, but you know what? I've gone through, I left and I've spent about, you know, 23 or 24 years developing some really, you know, great skills at doing oversight and criminal investigations and focusing on organizational integrity. And I'm going to throw my name in the hat because I can't think of a greater honor yeah. than being able to come back to where it all started and help contribute something to the organization. And so I, I put in for the position, I got it, and I, I, I can't really articulate exactly, you know, how, um, you know, proud I am to have been given that position and how seriously I take the job. That's, that's outstanding. I'm, and we're definitely glad that you did. So speaking of adopt, the job, this is in 2019, you're referring to, you become the executive director of the, what you call the IOD or the investigative operations directorate. I don't think that's the only part of OPR and we'll, we'll get into that as well, but tell me a little bit about what OPR is. So define, you know, if I'm an OPR's perspective, what, what is what is OPR? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the most basic way to think about it is sort of integrity and accountability. So OPR has sort of two separate directorates. Um, as you mentioned, the side that I'm responsible for, investigative operations, um, consists largely of criminal investigators and analysts. We look into um, allegations of misconduct. We um, uh, look into diff different types of uh, incidents that might occur to review them. Is a whole separate part of um, of uh, OPR called the Security Operations Directorate, and they're focused on that integrity piece, which is making sure that the folks that we're bringing into the organization are of the highest caliber, that they're suitable for the position, that they've been properly screened, and that while they're here, that we continue to monitor our workforce to make sure that they are at the highest level from an integrity point of view. There's also a piece of the Security Operations Directorate that focuses on the physical security of CBP facilities. Uh, and so those jobs, those two um, sort of divisions complement each other well, uh, because whereas they are trying to make sure that we're hiring the suitable workforce and that the workforce is at the highest level, our, on our side of the investigative operations directorate, when that comes into question, when there's a question about whether the right thing was done or whether our employees you know, acted appropriately or acted with integrity, okay. that's the other piece which falls under my side, which is to look into that and to get to the bottom of those issues. Right. So, you know, arcing back to the, the, the perf and why, how uh, OPR comes about generally, it sounds like potentially the perf is saying maybe the, the Customs and Border Protection Enterprise lacks uh, a bit of public trust. Mm -hmm. And based on what you say in terms of adding accountability, transparency, uh, uh, thoroughness in investigation, timeliness in investigation, it kind of sounds like maybe that's what OPR is there to do is really gain back that public <coughs> trust. We know potentially that there are, and we'll probably get into this in a little bit as well, but um, 
in an organization the size of CBP, there's going to be some things that go wrong. There's going to be some bad actors within our ranks. But at the same time, we're committed uh, as professionals, as a professional law, enforce, law enforcement organization to uh, rooting out those those issues, correcting them, and preventing them from happening again. So interestingly enough, you, you conduct investigations. What Are they all related to misconduct by our employees or... How does, that, how does that work? That's a great question. So I would say roughly they kind of fall into two categories. So one of them definitely pertain to misconduct. And if you yeah. go back to the original enacting legislation that created OPR, mm-hmm. um, it was the um, Trade Facilitation Trade Enforcement Act of 2015, which is actually signed into law in 2016. Yep. Um, but it gave our office the authority to conduct both administrative and criminal investigations of employee misconduct. Um, it also um, gave our office responsibility for broadly looking into corruption issues and working to root out corruption within CBP through some analysis and things of that nature. Um, so when we when we talk about our investigations, they broadly fall into two general categories. One would be where we have a specific allegation that there's been some sort of misconduct on the part of a CBP employee, or we develop our own information that there could be um, you know, some sort of a malfeasance on the part of an employee. But the other piece is also from a public um, accountability point of view, when um, uh, CBP personnel are involved in some sort of a critical incident, mm-hmm. that we will go out and review those incidents. And we really have three major objectives when we do that. First is to thoroughly and independently document the facts and circumstances of what happened. Um, the second is to make sure that all of our personnel adhere to all the relevant, you know, uh, agency regulations and laws. Mm-hmm. And the third is a look at that incident to say, is there anything about how this particular incident occurred, um, which better training or better tactics um, could, you know, mitigate or ameliorate the consequences in the future? Um, and those aren't criminal investigations. Those are simply administrative reviews that are designed to help us perform better as an agency. Um, and broadly speaking, they kind of fall into several categories. I mentioned critical incidents. We're talking about you know, use of force incidents with a serious injury or death. Um, we're talking about um, uh, instances where maybe we have a vehicle pursuit that results in a traffic crash where there's injuries or serious property damage. And any time that somebody dies in our custody, which obviously is, is very serious. So those particular areas, we have sort of dedicated investigative elements that review those instances when they come up. So you mentioned being at the Ronald Reagan building at headquarters and and just for my edification, that's kind of the headquarters element of OPR as well, just like the Border Patrol or uh, Field Operations or Air and Marine. But you guys have field offices all over the country. Is that right? Yeah, we do. So, I mean, <clears throat> we have about 25 field operating locations. We call them special agent in charge offices. And then they have resident agent in charge offices and, and smaller places in between. But more or less, pretty much everywhere where you'll find CBP personnel yeah. working along the southwest border, you'll find OPR personnel uh, relatively nearby. Right. We have our own offices, we have our own command structure, but we are spread out from Brownsville to San Diego right. and then from, you know, from Seattle all the way over uh, across to Detroit and Buffalo, up to Vermont and then down in New York City to Miami to the Caribbean. So we've got folks, you know, uh, well situated to be able to respond and provide that oversight. Yeah. And from a chief patrolman's perspective, it's it's critical. Um, I, I, I invite and require uh, as a, as a chief patrol agent, that independent investigation, uh, that accountability piece, um, I understand the independence that that OPR. Even though you're sitting within the under the roof of CBP, you have a different kind of direct line connectivity to leadership. Uh, you don't fall necessarily or at all, not even necessarily, but at all under the purview of say the chief of the border patrol. Mm-hmm. So you don't answer the chief; you answer to the commissioner. 
right? Right, yeah, so that, that's a really important point because um, in order for the oversight to be credible, there has to be a level of independence, yeah. right? Um, and so we do work for CBP, um, but within CBP, we have some structural independence. So my boss, the assistant commissioner, does report directly to the commissioner. Right. Um, and um, that structure does work and it does exist. But even more importantly, it's respected. Yeah. Um, and so as a person that's you know primarily responsible for conducting these investigations and reviews, um, I have um, you know free access to all the senior leadership of CBP. Um, if I call, people answer. Um, people are very respectful of our um, of our authorities and of our independence, right. um, and I think that's critical to us being an accountable law enforcement organization. And I can point to you know one of the things that we do every year is we actually publish and we put up on the internet, um, and it's on the web on the on the on, on the CP website an actual report that tells you how many cases did OPR open, how many cases do they close, how many people were disciplined, right. and actual summaries of the cases. So we put a lot out there for the public to see. Um, and that independent oversight piece is, is absolutely critical for us to have the kind of accountability agency of this size needs. Well, so I can go right to the public-facing website and, and learn all that information of uh, investigations that have occurred and been concluded and, and learn about uh, essentially the inner workings of CBP as it relates to the conduct of our employees. Yeah, yeah I would say it's definitely a work in progress. Um, we um, you know, recently did some upgrades to the CBP.gov website. If you go under newsroom and, and then you go to transparency and accountability, you'll find a whole bunch of reports just like that. And then you're also going to actually find descriptions of various types of incidents that have occurred in the reviews that we've done. So we're trying to put more and more out there in the public eye. So we talked a little about OPR, and I want to get a little more into it in a second, but square something up for me. We have... OPR and CBP, but also have other investigative entities within the U.S. federal government, even within the, the umbrella of DHS. We have uh, Office of Inspector General. We have uh, folks like the FBI. How do we operate, or I say we, how does OPR operate in, in that uh, world, in the world of investigations, in conjunction or alongside with these other entities, and how, how do we decide who does what? Yeah, so Chief, I'm going to take your question. I'm even broaden it a little more, okay. which is in addition to you know, the IG within the Department of Homeland Security and then these other federal law enforcement agencies, as you know, we operate in hundreds of counties. That's right. And so we've got state authorities, we have county authorities, we have sheriffs, we have police chiefs, right? So that's one of the most complex aspects of providing oversight to CBP is that depending on the incident that we're responding to, there could be a multitude of agencies that actually will respond and show up. And so if you ask me to describe for you what are the most important skills that our special agents have to have, it's the ability to be able to um, get to a scene, establish contact with the other folks that are there, and open lines of communication, have effective collaboration. Um, One of the challenges we have is that when you have a law enforcement officer, for example, involved in a shooting, Mm -hmm. um, you actually have a whole bunch of different agencies that are coming and looking at it for a variety of different reasons. I'll just give an example. If a Border Patrol agent is assaulted and they discharge their their firearm and um, someone ends up being killed, the person that someone shot and killed, um, let's talk about all the different agencies that might be involved in what they do. Well, the first thing is that if that Border Patrol agent was assaulted, then that's a crime. It's an assault against a federal officer. And generally speaking, the FBI has investigative responsibility for that incident. So you have some special agents from the FBI that will show up, and their job is to look into that assault. Anytime that we take the life of somebody else in the course of doing our duties Mm -hmm. um, in accordance with our use of force policy, there is an examination that has to be done to make sure that that use of force was lawful. If it wasn't lawful, it could be a crime. And so in some areas, 
the FBI has a separate squad that looks into um, civil rights violations. And so a second squad of FBI agents might show up, and their job is not to look at the person that assaulted the agent, Mm -hmm. but to look at the actions of the agent to make sure that they respected the civil rights of the person that was shot. But murder and homicide are also very much a state and local matter. So you'll also frequently have a local police department that will show up. And they're also doing their own review for their district attorney. And then you'll have a medical examiner that has the medical legal determination about the cause and manner of death. And they're looking at it. Our office is looking at it from a, a minimum, from an administrative point of view, because at some point that use of force incident is going to be reviewed by CBP's National Use of Force Review Board. All those things I talked about, about, you know, do we follow the policies? What actually happened? Is there anything we could do better? So we're out there doing that. Um, and sometimes you can have an even more complex situation where there's other agencies that will show up. Uh, you mentioned the inspector general, a very important um, part of the accountability matrix within the department. The IG has, um, is an independent body. The IG is appointed by the president, um, confirmed by the Senate. And they have the independent authority to step in anywhere they want to make sure that we're complying with all of our agency's rule, rules and regulations, which includes those regulations that guide what our office is doing. Right. And so the IG may sometimes show up. And so um, these things are very, very complicated. And like I said, one of the most important skills our agents have to have is to get out there and to help manage those relationships and help manage those communications. What we want is a very effective, collaborative approach to sharing information, making sure evidence gets preserved, making sure every agency gets the information they need so that ultimately at the end, we can take a really good, thorough look at what happened and make sure that the agent that was involved in that incident, you know, gets a very fair uh, opportunity and a fair review. And that's what's important about that is having all that data collected. So uh, that's a tremendous outline of of the complexity associated with um, we pulled the trigger one time. Yes. Right. We pulled the trigger one time. uh, Unfortunately, a life was taken. Mm -hmm. Um, It has to be reviewed. But if you don't mind, maybe put your former Border Patrol hat on for a second and tell me what how does this you know, you're you're now surrounded. I'm I'm the shooter. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm I'm the agent who, who pulled the trigger. What are my responsibilities? Mm-hmm. Who who do I talk to? What do I have to? What are my requirements by law mm-hmm. that I have to comply with? <clears throat> yeah. So first and foremost, under agency policy, um, after a, a use of force incident like that occurs, um, one of the first things that happens is that a supervisor. Well, first of all, uh, issues of safety and health and medical needs would be the absolute highest priority. Always, so if the, anyone who's injured on the scene, whether it's a bystander, whether it's the person that assaulted the agent, whether it's the agent themselves. The, once those sort of very, very immediate um, emergency-type needs are taken care of, um, one of the first things that sh- should happen under under our use of force policy is that a Border Patrol supervisor would approach that agent, would approach me, um, and ask me a series of public safety questions. They don't go into detail about what happened, right. but they're designed to figure out uh, generally you know, how many shots were fired, what direction they were fired, and has everybody involved in the incident been secured? Is anybody medical assistance? Right. And that sort of gets us that very basic information that we need to at least make sure that there isn't someone you know, bleeding and lying out somewhere that we don't know about, and that we have a good sense of sort of what the scope of the, of the incident is. Um, after that, um, you know, the agent, uh, there may be some um, other types of um, documentation that's necessary. One of the things that we'll frequently do in an agent-involved shooting we're required to do is an ammo count. Um, so we'll take a look at, we'll, we'll, we'll photograph the agent's duty weapon. We will um, count the number of, of, of rounds that were expended, take some photos of the agent and their appearance, um, especially important if there was an alleged assault 
um, if the if uh, it helps document the story, any injuries the agent had, and then after that, the agent is given a reasonable period of time um, to um, you know seek medical attention, rest, compose themselves, talk to a union rep or attorney if they choose to, and then at some point they'll be asked to come in and give a uh, voluntary statement about what occurred. Um, and as we talked about earlier, there could be a number of different agencies that want that, that are interested in that voluntary statement. And the and the key word there is voluntary. So sure. um, if the uh, if the agent uh, uh, chooses to cooperate and gives a voluntary statement, that's their option. Um, if they don't, um, the agency also has the um, authority and the ability at the appropriate time to compel a statement from the agent. Sort of immediate actions really pertain to making sure everybody's safe and documenting any perishable evidence that might be there on the scene. That's important for everyone, including the shooter, because um, assuming there's nothing wrong with the shooting, everything was done on the up and up, um, that evidence helps document that. Right. And so it's in everyone's interest that we get out there, that we collect that basic information and then the agent will have some time to to compose themselves before they're required to come in and ask to give a voluntary statement or certainly required to give one. Yeah. So, I mean, agents are, are you know, voluntarily asked to give a statement and at some point potentially compelled to give a statement. But all that is to say we're just trying to get the facts on paper. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have a, a first person kind of point of view. Um, you're operating under the authority of the U.S. Border Patrol and all the authorities that come with that. So the statement's required when you when you do that. And it's not meant to, you know, potentially incriminate somebody. Uh, it's meant to just simply find the facts, get them on paper, and, and then assess it from there, investigate it from there. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it goes without saying, but um, when we, you know, um, put a badge and gun on every day, yeah. um, that's a lot of authority. Mm-hmm. And with that authority comes a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Um, and um, there's a high expectation from the public and from Congress and I think even from ourselves Absolutely. that um, if we use force in a situation like that, and I know it's the last thing that anybody wants to do, that we have to thoroughly look into that and, and document you know, what occurred. Right. Um, and we have a whole process for doing that. It's pretty well established um, and, um, and it works. And, and so I think it's just important for folks to um, you know, learn a little bit about the process yeah. and make what they consider to be their best decisions once they get into it. So. One last question on it, and I'll move on from it. But as it relates to the agent, what is their duty status during this investigative period? Mm-hmm. So the, the incident happens, we go, you know, uh, colloquially right of bang, right? So we get this, you know, initial kind of conversation up front, ask these safety questions, uh, then you get a bit of respite to collect yourself. Uh, maybe you have an opportunity to have some administrative days as well to ensure that your well-being is where it needs to be because this is a traumatic situation. Um, but then obviously, you know, the investigation isn't going to be concluded to, you know, today's Thursday on Friday. Mm-hmm. So what, what happens to the agent during that time? Yeah, I mean, the, the first I, I want to say is that, you know, is, is OPR, we don't get to decide people's duty status. Right. That's ultimately a decision that's made up in their, in, in, in their own chain of command. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there's a, is a, a, a range of options I've seen from, um, as you said, you know, people having uh, some administrative time, being able to um, seek any medical care they need. Being able to, you know, talk to peer support, talk to chaplaincy, um, and uh, when they're ready, they're able to come back to essentially full duty status. Um, there are other cases when folks will be put on administrative leave. Um, if there is sort of a question about the circumstances, or that that seems appropriate, uh, maybe because of their own state, uh, their chain of command. Um, it really depends on the circumstances. Our our responsible in OPR is if there's something about it, and it's not just shootings. If there's something about any incident or any investigation that we're aware of. 
that we think that the chain of command needs to be aware of to make a decision yeah. about someone's duty status. We share that with them. And there are times um, when it's appropriate right. to bring somebody off of law enforcement status, uh, either to help them or to protect others or just to sort of have that cooling off period while we figure out what happened. And for clarification, this is not, uh, you know, the, the world according to Dan Altman is his opinion of, hey, you know, Ryan Landrum shot and killed somebody. You need to pull him off. It's not your opinion. It's, it's based on the facts that you have found and what where the le- investigation has led you that you can make a uh, an informed uh, kind of decision opportunity for the decision maker. Yeah, and I think I think right. You know, people ask you, well, what, you know, what are you really doing over here? What's your job? Yeah. I think the answers were fact finders, right? Yeah. So um, the most the, the most valuable service I can bring, I think, to um, the chain of command of the various components that we oversee. And there's three, right? There's three operational components, yeah. is to help them understand this is what we know about this incident right now. Mm-hmm. This is what we know about the people that were involved in it, and then that chain of command can then make the appropriate decision. You know, um, that's you know in, in everyone's best interest. So we yeah. we try to be objective, um, and just provide that information, and we really focus on. Um, not making assumptions, yeah. not guessing, but really trying to provide decision makers with accurate data they can use to make informed decisions, and we yeah. and we guard that. Um, it's the most precious thing. It's the it, it's it's why our office has credibility, yeah. is because the quality of the information we provide is is highly accurate and it's validated. Arguably, it's why CBP has credibility, right? Uh, you know, you look at an internal investigations and OPR kind of department. It, you know, if if we didn't have one or it wasn't on the up and up or, you know, it didn't have the integrity that OPR does, it would challenge the integrity of the entire organization, not just necessarily your office. Um, obviously, the three operational components you spoke of were the Office of Air and Marine, um, Office of Field Operations, which mm-hmm. is the guys in, at the ports of entry, and then obviously uh, U.S. Border Patrol. So you kind of have to, to do all these investigations for all three components. So it's not just Border Patrol. Right. We're talking tens of thousands of officers and agents out there. So it's a, that is an expansive world. Yes. Um, so we're still right at bay, mm-hmm. right? And we're, we're kind of pivoting off this one uh, hypothetical scenario of, of a deadly force uh, incident uh, with, you know, one shot being fired and somebody's now dead. You have all these investigative requirements, but we also have, uh, you mentioned something about oversight. Mm-hmm. We have a responsibility to communicate with, uh, you know, oversight committees and, and people that govern the, the actions that we take and how we assess those actions, investigate those actions. Can you talk to me a little bit about, A, what it, what is oversight? B, to whom, mm-hmm. right? And why do we care? Yeah. Why do we care? Yeah. So I think I think it really comes down to sort of a, a really fundamental question, which is, you know, it's 2022. I've been in federal law enforcement since my 27th year. And the expectations of the public um, and Congress, uh, and, and, and frankly, our own internal expectations are at the highest level they've been. It's certainly my 27 years in law enforcement. And so I think the question is, you know, in a situation like this, you know, what is expected of us and by who? And so the first thing is, I, I, to make it very simple, it's transparency and accountability, right? And those, those requirements, I think, are driven from three places, chiefly. One is ourselves. You know, we have some organizational values, you know, integrity is one of them and making sure that we follow the rules and regulations, making sure that if we make a mistake or an error, that we correct it, that we learn from it. Um, And CBP is a um, is an organization with very high standards. Um, And so we've invested a tremendous amount in making sure that when incidents like this occur, that we immediately take a look at it before anybody else has to tell us to. 
and that we satisfy ourselves that either everything was done properly or if it wasn't, that we take the appropriate action. That second layer of oversight um, comes from Congress. And so um, each year, Congress has put um, even more sort of stringent oversight requirements on, uh, on CBP. Just for an example, um, last year in fiscal year 21, um, there was a requirement added that um, we notify Congress within 24 hours in any situation in which someone dies in our custody. Okay. And one subset of an in-custody death is any death involving a use of force incident. Mm-hmm. And so not only are we required to report to Congress in detail the facts and circumstances of what happened, but the requirement goes further. It requires we make the same notification to the public. Oh. So if you go up that, that Transparency and Accountability webpage, wow. um, what you're going to find in addition to the reports we talked about is summary after summary of various incidents that occurred in which, unfortunately, there was a loss of life. Right. Um, and so we're, we are um, meeting those requirements. And then I think the third, um, you know, the third source of that sort of expectation comes from the public. Um, and so uh, CBP has continued to evolve, um, and we're making more and more information available to the public. Um, we routinely engage with some of the um, external stakeholders um, some of whom are on a daily basis are highly supportive of CBP, others of whom are our critics, but it doesn't much matter to us. Um, the feedback is important. Um, and what those organizations are largely calling for is uh, transparency and accountability. And as I said, those are values that are important to us. Um, and so we really are um, working hard to, to improve those areas and every day I think making good good improvements. I, I think that's a perfect recap. Um, you know, we expect a lot of ourselves and we should, right, internal congressional requirements. These things are laws. These things, uh, you know, you have this requirement to report uh, timely and there's a consequence associated with it, right? Increased scrutiny, increased uh, thoughts that we're trying to cover something up and stuff like that. So you have to do due diligence and meet those requirements to ensure that transparency and accountability, because again, going back, if you, IOD, doesn't do that, then it starts to degrade the trust of uh, congressional oversight um, for the entire organization, and that's huge. Uh, and then obviously uh, the public um, holds us in an extremely high, uh, in, in an extremely high standard to not only uh, operate appropriately, but then also communicate against those things. So great, great summary. Um, as it relates to internal investigations, and if you spend any time in law enforcement, especially in the border environment, you know that uh, these things can kind of probably also uh, cross international lines, mm-hmm. right? So if you're, you know, how, how do you guys operate in a sphere where uh, maybe some of the corruption that we deal with generates in, in another country, say Mexico or Canada or somewhere else? And how do we, you know, how do we investigate those types of things? Yeah, so uh, first of all, uh, it's a it's a great point. And any number of different uh, incidents occur that have, a, have, have sort of implications on both sides of the border. Yeah. So CBP has um, uh, personnel assigned um, to the various, oh, the embassy and the various consulates in Mexico. Um, and so when we need to, we're able to access to those personnel or directly um, the um, appropriate government agencies in Mexico uh, or Canada to get uh, information that we need, uh, share information with them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, it, it is tough, though. Um, one of the realities is that um, there's the, a very long border, and there are a lot of very remote areas along the border. Yeah. Um, and so just like, um, you know, we, it's, it's sparsely populated on our side of the border, it's also sparse, sparsely populated on their side of the border as well. Mm-hmm. But those, those, both of those countries in their own way experience the same challenges that we do, and so when, whenever we need to get that information, we're generally able to, to get it. 
Awesome. I just to kind of wrap up the, the entire thought. Um, obviously, when an investigation, you know, sometimes it uncovers, you know, m- malicious intent or corruption or uh, a wrongful shooting, something like that. Um, but how does how does the investigation contribute to the exoneration of a border patrol agent or a CBPO? And even when maybe uh, uh, a governing body, uh, whether it be the public, Congress, or even ourselves, maybe have formed a, a, an opinion that based on you know the, the the Monday morning quarterback optics of the situation that this was not done correctly. So how, how can OPR help, you know, by finding the facts, how, how do you help communicate that? And what are your general reactions when maybe uh, an opinion is is kind of uh, disproven and it's changed? Yeah. Well, listen, I think for myself personally, I think one of the toughest things about being in law enforcement is just to, to have seen over the course of my career what a negative light, yeah. you know, our, our profession has been cast in in some circles. And it's tough, right? Um, sometimes deserved, sometimes not. Um, but it is tough. And so... Um, just to talk maybe a little bit internally first to answer your question. So when we do an investigation, um, there's always findings. Um, right. And um, those findings are passed on to the employee's chain of command. And they're also passed on to an internal entity within the CBP that's responsible for starting the disciplinary process. Yeah. Um, it's not that satisfying, but if you get accused of something and you didn't do anything wrong, then we just publish a report and we say you didn't do anything wrong and right. you probably never hear anything about it again. And if you ask, we'll, we'll tell you. Um, and conversely, if, if you did do something wrong, then that will work its way, you know, through the process. Um, and so on individual employee misconduct issues, you know, we run through a significant number. You know, last year alone, um, it was in, in fiscal year 20, we received 7,143 complaints and we opened 1,900 investigations. Wow. Um, and so it's a tremendous amount of work, but every one of those things gets followed. We closed almost 2,000 investigations. So about the same number we opened, we closed. And so, um, you know, so there is a feedback mechanism within CBP, uh, but also um, we do have the ability uh, to communicate externally. And so when there is an incident that occurs um, where there is a high level of public concern, when we're able to, and that's one of the most difficult and frustrating things about being in my job is that frequently um, when we have a critical incident like a shooting or something else, I have a pretty good idea what happened 24 to 36 hours Afterwards, because we've 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 working with those other agencies, we we have a good sense of what happened, but it, we cannot, we absolutely cannot have information leaks. We've got to let all those different investigations run out, and there could be five or six different investigations. And if CBP was to get ahead of those investigations, start releasing information publicly, it could actually damage those other investigations, yeah. and then also put CBP in a negative light. And that's a little tough sometimes; it's hard for people to understand. Well, yeah. this shooting happened a week ago. Why haven't you? told everybody what happened. And the reason is because there is um, is a delay. But on the point about you know, shootings and major use of force incidents, same webpage, cup.gov, up on the transparency and accountability page, there's actually, you can actually click on the link. It has the summaries of all the cases that have gone before our National Use of Force Review Board. So when you follow that process all the way through, you will eventually put a summary up there to explain to you, this is what happened. This is what the board's opinion was about it. Um, and, um, and and provide that information. Um, we're also able to provide um, to Congress and sometimes the public updates about specific situations, um, and we try to do that as often as possible yeah. uh, to try to provide context and help people understand uh, the difficulties that we, uh, you know, the, the complexities of a lot of the issues that, that come up. Right. So, I mean, it's it's vitally important, especially, you know, I, I still wear the, the green uniform and I sit as a chief patrol agent and somebody who's had to... Uh, 
lead employees post shootings, it's traumatic, mm-hmm. you know, and you see a range of responses from these people, um, from our agents. We train you to uh, the nth degree on how, what what your authorities are, how to apply those authorities, how to how they, they, the the use and proficiency of a firearm, uh, all these things, and we prepare you so that when these things happen, uh, you can just use your judgment and react appropriately in these incidents. But what we don't necessarily prepare you for is post incident. Right, we don't do a great job of doing that, so it can be confusing. You kind of describe this this environment where there's you know seventy two and a half investigators you know breathing down your neck for all this information, and you're kind of confused on what to do. But you know, take the cases of, for example, a, a, a bad shoot out of out of the scenario. But you know, the the otherwise what we characterize as good shoots, which generally means that they were. Uh, legal, you know, the, the the adversary presented the, the intent and means and opportunity, and uh, the the officer, the agent was uh, fully authorized and well within the scope of his authority to to pull that trigger and take that life. Um, just getting that feedback from their organization is tremendous, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't want to call it uh, exoneration because it's not like as if they did something wrong and they were exonerated or accused wrongly of, of doing something wrong, but just that feedback mechanism that. The process worked. Mm-hmm. We told you there was going to be a process. We told you there was going to be an investigation. You should expect that as a, as the person who pulled that trigger. But at the same time, I'm committed to telling you, obviously, if you did it wrong, we'll mm-hmm. tell you that too in, in those ways. But uh, at the same time, if you if we believe you did it right, we will let you know that too. Right. It is a huge, yeah, huge and, part of this. And so we, I talked a little bit about National Use of Force yes. Review Board. And so that's of those most serious incidents. And so I, I mentioned earlier, I just happened to have at the top of my head for fiscal year 20, yep. that we had beheld eight boards during that year. And so at the conclusion of that process, the, the, the agent or officer involved in the incident does get feedback. And then we do publicly release the results of the, of the board. We also have a separate set of boards called Local Use of Force Review Boards. Okay. And those are chaired by OPR, usually chaired by OPR special agents in charge. They look at less lethal uses of force, usually ones that don't involve serious um, injuries or deaths. And we did about 500 of those. So we reviewed about 500 use of force incidents in fiscal year 20. Oh. And of the 500, 17 were um, determined to be potentially out of policy and potential misconduct issues. And then th- those were then referred to our... Uh, misconduct investigation side. What that goes to show you, 17 out of 500 is a fairly low number. So, right. um, and we do, we took a very thorough look at these things. If there's video available, we listen to it. If there's witness statements, we do a very, very thorough job um, looking at them. And if there's an issue, then we'll, we'll address it. But the majority of the times we'll determine, um, you know, we'll collect the facts and the folks that make the decisions will determine that the use of force was within policy. Yeah. It's a great, you know, kind of book into it as it relates to what we're doing here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy is uh, I would uh, almost submit to you that uh, 17 out of 500 is a larger reflection of the training that we provide our people, whether it be Air and Marine, OFO or Border Patrol, um, preparing them for this potentiality, for this uh, reality as it relates to being a law enforcement officer. That's an inherently dangerous job that requires you to do uh, uh, some of these types of things. But it also speaks to... Um, Maybe we can help drive that number even lower by continuing education, training our supervisors, uh, and how to how to uh, manage people uh, as well. But um, all in all, I think that you know, seventeen out of five hundred is is not perfect, but it is a pretty darn good ratio when you consider the volume that you have to deal with on an annual basis just in one FY. That's pretty impressive. 
I think one of the things I, as, you, as you're talking, it makes yeah. me think about that where we tend to see, where we do tend to see issues, and, and we've seen them, and not just in, in, in CBP, but in law enforcement in general, where people tend to have a problem is when they lose their composure, they lose their patience, and they lose their, that law enforcement bearing that we focus on in yeah. training. Yep. Um, and so, you know, um, just really, you know, um, if, if, if people, you know, really want to you know, sort of focus on anything, um, it's, you know, de escalation, it's not allowing the other person to sort of take control of the interaction uh, and making sure that all that training that we all get is we're coming through our law enforcement careers that you, that you sort of consistently apply that in your engagements with the public. That's, that's could not end it any better myself. Um, so as we, we talk through um, kind of what IOD is, what the office of professional responsibility is, you guys uh, inarguably have a tremendous amount of stuff on your plate. Um, that's both uh, internal issues and things known to the public. At the, at the forefront of many investigations. Uh, but we are here today at the What's Important Now podcast. So uh, XD, I'd like to give you the floor to maybe talk to, to the audience a little bit about maybe the three or four things that are vitally important to you right now. Yeah, so we kind of already got a head start on the on the number one thing I want to talk about, which was you know accountability and transparency. So I think one of the most frequent questions you know, people have people get into some sort of a in, critical incident. It might be a vehicle pursuit with a crash, or there's been some sort of, you know, traumatic use of force incident. Oh God, here comes the guy from OPR. They're going to ask <laughs> me a bunch of questions. Why are they here? You know, and and listen, um, I, I'm not immune to it. So um, if 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 I'm involved in an incident or something goes wrong in my life, I have people to come and look at me too. So no one likes the idea of being second guessed or being the target of an investigation That's or right. review. I think that one of the main things I really wanted to, to footstop in, in our time together today was just that given the expect, given our internal expectations and also the expectations of the public and Congress, we can sort of anticipate that there's going to be a continued focus on accountability and transparency. So that means as we're out and doing our jobs that um, when incidents occur, and they invariably will, because we've got you know the um, over 40,000 personnel working in all manners of environments um, dealing with all kinds of unique law enforcement you know challenges 24 hours a day um, things are going to happen incidents are going to come up um, and um, you know I want to work for an organization that when those things come up that we look at them that if that there, if there's an issue or a concern that we address it that we improve uh, and that if we did everything right that we also communicate that as well um, and so I can't I don't want to apologize for our office I I, I don't think we're doing anything wrong. I don't, I, I don't view what we're doing as harassing people, but I really want folks to understand there is a really strong expectation on CBP. And so um, as we come around and we're asking those questions, we're not there to Monday morning quarterback people, we're not there to second guess you, but we are doing our job. Um, and it's really important from an organizational point of view that we, that we maintain that accountability and transparency. Um, I think that, that, so I think, I think largely I've sort of, you know, made that point as we had our conversation um, and the second, the second thing that I want to talk about today, um, and I just want to be clear at the outset, I think it's a very interesting topic. Um, it's probably the, maybe, the, maybe the, the part of the podcast that people think is the most interesting or exciting. Yeah. Um, this issue I'm going to talk about represents an ex- almost infinitesimally small part of our workforce, yeah. but a very, very significant threat. And so I want to talk about a little bit of corruption. Sure. Um, and so um, one of the major responsibilities of OPR and one of the reasons why our office was created, not just on the investigative side, but also on the security operations side. Everybody who's wearing, everyone's in a law enforcement position who's come on board in the last you know, several years has taken a polygraph. 
And the reason for that is that the Anti-Border Corruption Act of 2010 requires that all applicants to a law enforcement position within CBP pass a polygraph. Um, and the reason that that requirement exists, I mean, it's sort of self-explanatory from the name of the law, Anti-Border Corruption Act, um, that as the guardians of the border, as the people who are responsible for essentially controlling the flow of people and materials in and out of the United States, um, that's a tremendous responsibility. It also poses a tremendous vulnerability and an extremely attractive target to transnational criminal organizations, um, you know, um, migrant smuggling organizations, uh, drug trafficking organizations, uh, folks that are involved in other types of smuggling, especially on the northern border. Uh, and so our personnel, whether it be um, air and marine pilots that are flying around that can, and operators that can actually see boats coming and going in the Caribbean, whether it's a border patrol agent that's out that's responsible for a piece of the border or for technology monitoring the border, whether it's a customs and border protection officer who's literally, you know, waving people through or sending them to secondaries or coming through a port of entry, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility associated with those with those positions. Um, and um, unfortunately, um, uh, people that are in that position are frequently the target of um, efforts by these um, transnational criminal organizations to find a way to exploit that access to help them further their cause. Um, and so, you know, we talk about the uh, numbers of, of, of corruption cases that we have within CBP and the numbers of corrupt personnel, it's very, very low. Um, uh, however, um, it is uh, notwithstanding the fact that it's low, um, CBP um, has dedicated a tremendous amount of resources to trying to, yeah. to, to, to detect, that, detect that. So within OPR, um, we have about uh, 20 special agents that are assigned to border corruption task forces all across the country. Um, we have a um, separate unit that focuses exclusively on sort of long-term complex corruption cases. We have a threat mitigation analysis division full of analysts that are looking at different data points that might help us identify anomalous activity that could point towards uh, corruption. Um, and then other parts of CBP also have some other capabilities looking at, um, you know, um, data from uh, CBP systems and patterns of travel through checkpoints and things that help us identify that. So there's a tremendous investment um, in and trying to to detect those um, those 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 very small number of cases, what I wanted to really emphasize though um, is that probably the greatest resource that we have in CBP to detect corruption are the eyes and ears yeah. of its employees, um, and the way that sort of the way that sort of happens is it's two things. So one of them is you know as we go through our our daily job, um, you know. Uh, we may look at a system or process and say, hey, well, what's the vulnerability there? Mm -hmm. You know, if I wanted to, can I do this? Can I do that? Right. That's a normal instinct for, especially since we're cops, right? We're always trying to think, what the bad guy do? What, what, you know, how would they handle this? Right. Um, now, it is not a normal instinct to then start making phone calls and smuggle cocaine. Um, right. But I think as, as cops and, and people who are responsible for securing something, um, we frequently think about how that could be exploited or how it could be manipulated. And so the first thing is that as we're doing our daily job, whatever that is, it's incumbent upon everybody in CBP to do everything in their power to identify vulnerabilities yeah. and mitigate them. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple. I'm just give you a couple yeah, examples of cases. Good. But um, just looking at where the vulnerabilities are and saying, hey, you know what? Um, this probably should be a two-person thing. Or you know what? We probably need to 
uh, switch this up. Or, you know what, this schedule probably shouldn't be posted a week in advance. It's mm. things like that. It's thinking about in our own operational context, what can we do to mitigate corruption? And it's not a statement or insult against any employee. True. In other words, if I said to you, hey, chief, look, you know, we're going to, it's a good business practice for the seven of us not to know what our assignment is going to be for the next seven days. Mm. I'm not saying that I think you're corrupt. What I'm saying is in a highly functioning, highly focused organization that's trying to prevent corruption, it's a best practice right. to do that. And that none of us would take it personally. It's not about any of us individually. Right. It's about creating those right systems and control. So it's one area. But the other area that's really important is in almost every one of these instances where we did um, detect that there was someone that had sort of crossed over to the dark side, yeah. there were people that work with them that maybe saw something that was suspicious or anomalous or unusual, maybe had a suspicion, maybe heard something, maybe witnessed something. Um, and in some cases, that information comes forward to us. And that may actually be how we begin the investigation. But more frequently, after the person has been caught, then when we're people will come forward and say, yeah, you know, ah, this is it's actually not that surprising because, yeah. you know, for the past three years, other than you hear it, da, 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 there's nothing they knew they were corrupt, but just there was something going on. And so yeah. so the same um, observational skills, that same, you know, sense of, you know, awareness of what's going on around you as it pertains to the, the public and, and things that we do in our external enforcement mission, yeah. all those eyes and ears need to be focused, you know, internally as well. Um, so you think, like, what's important now? What do you want to communicate to the workforce? I think just letting people know um, that there is this potential vulnerability and that we all need to do our part to actually um, to actually address it. And I, and I mentioned early on in this sort of line of discussion that it's a very small problem, but a, a very big impact. Yeah. And I just want to give you an example of, uh, of, of a couple cases to kind of highlight that. So um, we had a, um, and I, unfortunately, I, I, well, I, it is what it is. I, I can only talk about cases that are complete where there's been right. a judicial action. And so um, there's more things I could talk about. But I think the examples I'm going to give you are good. That um, there was a, um, uh, a Border Patrol agent who um, in the mid-20-teens, you know, three, four years ago, was um, worked at both the NACO and Douglas Station. And um, for a variety of reasons, um, possibly including substance abuse issues, this border patrol agent um, got became into contact with folks on the south side of the border that were actively involved in uh, drug smuggling. Yeah. And um, what may have begun in the beginning as the simple process of, of, of maybe obtaining prescription pills for you know, his own use and the use of another border patrol agent that was also um, you know, uh, potentially abusing those prescription pills eventually escalated into something far more serious. <clears throat> and so this Border Patrol agent, over a course of, of a couple of years, um, first um, directly enabled smuggling by turning, essentially when he was monitoring cameras, turning the camera mm. and letting a group of 17 backpackers with drugs come by. Mm -hmm. um, that then escalated to providing scheduling information about when and where there were gaps and holes in the border. And that eventually escalated to sharing basically our entire security infrastructure for that stretch of the border, including the locations of sensors, what cameras could see and everything else. Yeah. And to a certain extent, those things can be ameliorated, but to a certain extent they can't. Yeah. Um, in other words, I, what, I would, what I would put forth is that this, this, this agent probably created permanent damage our ability to be able to secure that stretch of border. It's a sensitive stretch of border. Mm -hmm. It's remote. 
Um, it's difficult to, it was difficult to work beforehand. Um, and now um, uh, as a result of, of someone on the inside who, you know, who did this, um, our, our capabilities are compromised. Um, what's, what's shocking um, is that other than maybe um, having some of the drugs for, for, for his personal use, as far as we know, he received $16,000 uh, in exchange, $16,000 in cash uh, to compromise that, um, to compromise that, uh, that stretch of border. Mm. Um, and we had another case uh, recently um, involving an agent who was assigned to a checkpoint in, uh, in the RGV, Rio Grande Valley sector. And um, this agent was uh, also in touch with individuals that were involved in drug smuggling. Um, and so um, in exchange for $1,000 a vehicle, um, he would um, go to the checkpoint where he worked, he would look at the schedule, he would analyze who was working where, and then he would essentially guide the vehicles through the checkpoint. Um, and uh, fortunately, and, and I'm not giving up too much tradecraft here, but, but fortunately, um, you know, because of the great work of um, our partners in the Department of Homeland Security Office, yeah. Inspector General, working together with, with, with us, um, we were able to essentially catch that agent in the act wow. um, and, and actually, you know, arrest him at the checkpoint. Awesome. Um, and so, but if you think about that vulnerability about um, not being able to rely on your, you know, on your coworker at the checkpoint or, or, the, or, the, or the, just all the data and knowledge yeah. that we have. And I think the other, the other one I wanted to point out, and there's, this, this, is not, this is not one that's, that's, that's you know, fully complete, but certainly very well um, publicized um, in the media, Another case um, involving a Border Patrol agent who, um, at the time that he was arrested, had almost 400,000 fentanyl tablets on him, over 20 kilos of cocaine and a kilo of heroin. And that in the course of that investigation, you know, we, you know, the U.S. government was able to seize, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. Um, and all indications are that that agent was doing that behavior while working and even transferring potentially um, migrants and or drugs from his government vehicle into his personal vehicle in the station parking lot. And so um, thinking about those vulnerabilities, thinking about the things that can happen, um, that's why we really need those eyes and ears. Again, infinitesimally small part of the workforce, huge potential vulnerability. And you think about it in in what it, it just behooves all of us in whatever work we do to think about if there was someone dishonest amongst us, what could they exploit? Try to eliminate that vulnerability, A, and B, if we see something, say something. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, as you sit and talk about the the case that he's essentially, um, it's embarrassing. I'm sitting here wearing the uniform and it's, and and, and, and the, the important part of what I'm saying is I, by no means are you trying to be embarrassing. What you're doing is essentially acknowledging that there is a threat. Mm-hmm. Right, which we all know about. There's there's not a secret about that for anybody. Um, but you know, when we talk about things publicly, maybe it spurs somebody to think, watch, act. Um, and this you know this plays out in things like you know suicide awareness. Mm-hmm. The same thing, like take action. With whatever issue is in front of you, do not be afraid to take action mm-hmm. because it, we talk about our integrity. We talk about maybe saving somebody's life. Um, there's parlays about having tough conversations, right. mm-hmm. not, you know, not sweeping under the rug. It's just the, the thing we don't talk about. Right. 
we have to talk about these things. Yeah, and I hope you know, I hope people listening to the podcast also think of it. Like, there's a hundred things we could have talked about. Oh, sure. They weren't embarrassing, or right. and I feel the same way. By the way, it's like, I, I think all of us do. If you if you dedicated your career yes. to enforcing the law, mm-hmm. there's nothing more revolting than finding out that someone that wore the same uniform as you did yeah. is actually working for the other side, right? But we, there's a hundred things we could have talked about today. But we talked about one where we have had some problems. Mm-hmm. And I think that also reflects that this is an organization that's willing to sort of, you know, even air its dirty laundry if necessary, if it will help us do better, if it will help us learn. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and I'm proud to be part of an organization that's willing to do that, which is one of the reasons why I came back. Um, and, and, and I feel that we are in a place where we can really do that. Well, I, I don't think there's a better way to conclude this conversation than to say uh, we're proud to have you back. Um, we, we are proud of the Office of Professional Responsibility and uh, its intent, its mission, uh, the way it communicates. Um, the, the Having been in the headquarters environment, it may not be uh, so understandable for, for a field agent or somebody who has not been to headquarters uh, just how deep the oversight goes and the requirements and the expectations that we have to communicate uh, you know, obviously to ourselves and to the public, but uh, right, right there in the middle of the uh, of the congressional requirements, um, we we invite that. But it it is uh, is an intense mm-hmm. process. Um, it is uh, it's not the funnest thing we do at headquarters, <laughs> but uh, being able to have those conversations also buys us back that public trust. That's mm-hmm. where we started, right? We have got to do these things to ensure that we can continue to operate and continue to secure the borders as we know how to do but we have to do it we have to earn that ability every single day by being accountable and transparent so xd thank you very much thanks for having me tremendous conversation Uh, i was very much looking forward to this one i knew you were coming uh and and we don't get the opportunity uh, to talk to lesser known components of cbp and the leaders that lead those organizations and i can't think of a better one uh, to start my tenure in the WIND podcast than, than the Office of Professional Responsibility. So thank you. Thank you. Excellent. And with that, thank you for joining another episode of the What's Important Now podcast. Honor first. Mm-hmm.